Hey, Icon, good to be with you today. Uh, we are in John chapter 9, and this story is one of my favorite stories in the whole gospel because it's kind of a complete story from, from start to finish. Like, it's encapsulated in a way that kind of doesn't flow exactly with the rest of John's gospel, but it tells us a story that I hope um, kind of opens our eyes to ourselves. And so here's, here's what I'm going to ask as we go through this story right? A lot of times um, we're going to see Jesus tell a, you know, a parable and leave a bunch of mystery at the end, or there's a story in the gospel or a story in, you know, some, some part of the scriptures where we don't really understand it all until the end. And we have this aha moment. I'm going to ruin all of that for you now and tell you, you are the blind man. Okay. Like, I'm just going to tell you that now you are the blind man in this story. And so as we go through it, I want you to pay attention to that. Okay? I want you to watch how the blind man acts. I want you to hear what the blind man says. I want you to hear what Jesus says to the blind man. Okay, So I, I'm just ruined. I'm not going to say that to the end of this big reveal. And you're like, I've been the blind man the whole time, right? You're the blind man the whole time. Okay. Uh, in fact, William Temple, a great theologian and a commentator says this. He goes, the man blind from birth is every man and woman. For it is a part of that sin of the world, which the Lamb of God beareth away, that by nature we are blind until our eyes are opened by Christ, the light of the world. Okay? So as we read this story, just remember, say to yourself, I am the blind man. I am the blind man, right? So this story is great. It's funny. Uh, it's dramatic. Tearjerker. It's got everything. So let's jump in. John chapter 9 starting in verse one. So it says, as he passed by, this is Jesus, he's almost always Jesus, uh, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, what's interesting about this is they're, they're walking through crowds. They're in Jerusalem. There's thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. They're walking around. There are beggars everywhere. There are blind people everywhere. There are pe disabled people everywhere asking for money. It's crazy, right? There's something about this blind man. It says, Jesus saw him. Okay? And it was probably the fact that Jesus saw him, noticed him, turned his head towards him, that then forced or caused the disciples to ask the question in verse 2. It says this, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right. So this was the assumption of many of the day right? That if you were born blind or born with some disability, or even just more broadly than that, if anything bad happened to you, that it must have been because of sin, that you did something wrong or your parents or your grandparents did something wrong. And that's why you were born blind, right? This is, this was very common at the time. And, and honestly, it's still pretty common today. In fact, one Bible commentator pointed me to an LA Times article written in 2005 about the big tsunami that happened in Thailand, right? And this, this LA Times reporter went and asked a bunch of religious scholars and religious leaders in a bunch of different categories, like, how do you explain what happened with the tsunami? And it was super interesting to see both the Buddhist and Hindu scholars say basically like, it's karma. 
Somebody did something wrong. In fact, uh, here's a quote from the president of the Hindu Temple Society of Southern California. They said, we all believe that too many people were doing too many bad things. People have to live up to what they're supposed to do. This is what they said in, in response to this big tsunami that killed thousands and thousands of people in Thailand and Sri Lanka that basically went like, yeah, they shouldn't have been doing all those bad things. And if they hadn't been, this never would have happened, right? This is the idea of karma, right? And, and both Buddhist and, uh, and, and Hindu uh, faith structures would support the very question that the disciples asked Jesus, now, this LA Times reporter also asked a Muslim leader, and he had a little bit different take. He said this, he said, we should take it as a test from God to see how human beings respond. So he kind of dismissed the, the karmic part of this and just said, no, this is a test from God. God killed all of these people so that he could see how we would all respond. Now, they also interviewed a, a Jewish scholar and a Christian scholar, and we'll, we'll kind of get to the, their answers here in a moment. But I, I've got to add one more, because they talked to some like New Age Wiccan leader, and their response is kind of hilarious, and I just kind of want to read it because it's funny. It says, they, they said this, this is Ruth Barrett, a Wiccan high priestess. Where do you go to school for that? I don't know. She said, to followers of Wicca and other traditions that celebrate the divine in nature, the earthquake and tidal wave were simply a case of Mother Nature stretching. She had a kink in her back and she stretched, which is one, ridiculous, two, hilarious, three, a really simplistic and petty a description and explanation of why tens of thousands of people died. This Mother Nature lady seems like, you know, not, not great, right? Kinking her back, tens of thousands of people died. So not a super satisfying answer, right? But in the end, all of these perspectives cause their followers to basically look at somebody who is suffering or dying and say they deserved it deserved it. Like they would walk past a, you know, especially a Hindu or Buddhist person would walk past a man born blind and go, well, he deserves it. Either he did this or his parents did it. Either way, this, what, he had this coming to him, right? That's, that, that's how karma works, right? So let, let's, let's see how Jesus answers this question that, that the disciples ask him. Verse three said, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he dispels the whole karmic idea completely. It was like, this is not, this is not how this works, right? This is not what's, what's happening here. It's not that this guy sinned, which, you know, honestly, some Jewish scholars at the time thought that babies could sin in utero and, and that could affect, they come out blind because they, what? I don't know, said a bad word in utero or something. I don't, I don't really actually know how that works but they would come out uh, as a result of, with some disability, as a result of some internal sin, right? And Jesus goes, no, that, that's not it. He goes, but he is born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I wanna pause on this and, and go a, a little deeper just because this whole idea of suffering and the will of God and all this is, a, is one of the most common questions I've gotten in my 20 years as a pastor. 
right? So I, I wanna expand on this just for a moment and then I want us to see how this kind of works out in the rest of the story. So a couple of things that might be at work here and, and this is just broadly for those who suffer. This isn't just specifically this man. We're gonna see how it plays out for this man, but broadly for those who suffer. It is possible that, that this man's suffering is the consequence of some foolishness or sin on his parents' part. Now, you might go, but I thought you just said it wasn't the sin of the parents. Now, hear me. There's a difference between I sin and therefore God causes something to happen uh, to my kids as a result, as a consequence, as, as a, a kind of an, a, a ruling of God about my sin. There's a difference between that and the cause and effect consequence of sin. So um, if, a, if a mother who is pregnant uh, takes drugs or drinks or abuses her body in some way, there are consequences for that sin. She is sinning and sinning against her child, and there are often consequences for the child for that sin. That's different than, you know, the mom lied, and so God takes away the tongue of a child or something like that, Right? very different. So there are often natural consequences for our sin and foolishness, right? Like the, the, those things matter and, and they play out in real life. Number two, one of the options here could be that his blindness is not the result of any direct sin or foolishness, but a result of the general brokenness of God's creation as a result of sin. Right? And this is by far the most common category, which is the world is just broken. The world has sin in it. We are sinful. Everything around us is tainted by sin. And therefore, it is less than what God created to be. Things don't work exactly right. Cancer is a great example of this. A friend of mine's father just recently died very suddenly of cancer. Cancer is the result of cells in our bodies basically rebelling against us and destroying itself, destroying uh, our own bodies. This is not how we were created to be, and it is a result of the fall. So um, blindness in this man or suffering in any of us might be a result of the sinfulness of the world. Right? Just the general presence of sin that breaks down relationships, breaks down nature, breaks down our bodies. Now, I'm going to call this third one kind of 2B because it's a, a little bit of a take on the last one. It says this, that his blindness is meant to awaken him and his heart to the brokenness around him and therefore the hopelessness and incompleteness of this world, pointing us and him towards something greater. So here's what I would say. Sometimes, sometimes we experience pain and suffering and brokenness as a way to open our eyes to the incompleteness and brokenness of our world. Why? Because we are prone over and over and over without fail to reach for things. We talk about this all the time. Reach for things horizontally to hold us up, to make us secure, to protect us, to give us identity. And so sometimes God causes those things to fail us like a, like a walking stick that we're you know, using to, to hold us up. He would cause that thing to break so that we are reminded 
ended, that thing was never meant to hold us up in the first place. It has always been too weak. And, and, and it was fragile the whole time. So yeah, you got away with it for a little while. It held you up for a minute, but then it broke because it was not designed to bear your weight. The Bible actually talks about the law accomplishing this for us as well. Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He picks up this theme again a couple chapters later in Romans 7, basically going like, listen, the law was not ever meant to justify us. It's not as if God gave Moses the law and said, hey, if you guys could just live 100% by this, you'll be good. That's not, that was never the expectation of God, that God gave Moses the law to go, hey, here's, here is what I created you for. Right? Like, here is how I made the world to work. And, and y'all have no chance. Like, I've met you, right? Like, you have no chance to live up to this. So I, I want you to both do whatever you can to follow the law and live up to it and recognize you never will and you need me. That's how it's supposed to work. So when we lean on people, when we lean on things, when we lean on jobs, when we lean on all of the stuff around us, it's not as if we aren't meant to lean on it at all, right? Like I, my wife, Emily, is, is so important to me. I lean on her for almost, no, just everything, everything. I lean on her for everything. And yet she is not meant to bear the full weight of my needs and my identity and all those things. So I, she is meant for me to lean on her somewhat or in some ways, but not fully. And so when I lean on her too much, and it's not a weight thing, like I'm working out, but like when I lean on her for too many things and in too many ways, like she breaks. And, and we have relational conflict because I'm expecting something from her she was never meant to be, okay? So often, I think God causes things in our life to break, to remind us they're not him. And we want them to be him. We want them to do what only he can do. And so he goes, no, it's got weaknesses, it's got limits, and I'm gonna show you those limits so that you can be reminded that actually what you need is me, not them, okay? Last one. The brokenness in this man, the blindness in this man gave Jesus an opportunity to do the work of God, right? He says, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes, not always, sometimes Jesus heals. Sometimes Jesus protects. And oftentimes we don't even know when we have been protected, right? We don't, we don't feel the absence of pain. We don't feel the absence of suffering, right? So I think a lot of times Jesus intervenes, the spirit intervenes in our life to protect us from some pain or protect us from some suffering. And because we don't feel it, we don't know it, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you're watching somebody else almost get hit by something? And they're completely oblivious to it, but you're able to see like, oh my gosh, they almost just died. I have five kids. This happens 
every day, right? Especially my three-year-old, Will, just runs around the house haphazardly, completely oblivious to any and all danger. He's got swords and stuff running around. We're like, buddy, that's not an ideal situation. He is just oblivious to it, but we can see the protection of God over and over and over and over and over. He should be dead a hundred times over. He's, he's pretty dumb. Right? Like he just, he just, he is always taking risks that he should not take, and God protects him. I think that happens to us a lot, where we are oblivious to the ways that God's protected us, or we, we misattribute uh, uh, the, the credit for the ways in which we are thriving and growing and protected. And we think we're doing it, or we think other people are doing it, but in reality, it's God doing it. So in, in this case, as we're going to see here in a moment, Jesus actually heals this guy, intervenes in a way that everybody is going to recognize. So verse 4, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, Jesus was, you know, some, he, he liked to be mysterious sometimes. He could have just said, hey, we, we got to heal these guys while I'm here because I'm not going to be here forever. But he's like, there's a day and there's a night and all this. This is what he's saying. He goes, while I'm here, we got to do the works of God. We got to heal who we can heal. We got to save who we can save because I'm not going to be here forever. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, there's a couple of kind of weird things in, in this whole deal, right? Like first, Jesus could have just granted the guy uh, eyesight, right? What's interesting is he, he never talked to the guy. At least there's nothing recorded about him going like, hey man, uh, do you want to see how long have you been blind? There's no rapport, right? You know, they're not building relationship. Uh, there, there's like no sense in which this, that Jesus has engaged this guy at all. He just walks up and you got to imagine, assuming they haven't talked, that the guy just hears someone spit. He's got questions, right? And maybe here's the, the mud being made, all of a sudden feels mud being applied to his face that he knows is mud that, that is the result of some random guy spitting in the dirt, putting it on his face. And then the guy goes, hey, go wash yourself off in the pool of Siloam. Now, I'm going to make a bunch of assumptions here that are not in the text, but I got to imagine in a place like Jerusalem, where it's just like a big city, that people who are blind are often taken advantage of, right? So I, I don't know what this dude's been through, but you've got to try to put yourself in, in his spot and go, there's some random guy spitting in the ground, putting mud on my face, and then going to tell me to go wash it off in the pool of Siloam. I don't know how long of a walk that was, but why is Jesus asking a blind guy who he's about to heal to go walk blind with mud on his face a little further? Like you've been blind a long time since birth, but just go walk blind further with mud on your face to this pool and wash it off. All of it seems really unnecessary, and I don't understand exactly why Jesus is doing it this way. And here's the reality. Nobody else does either. The commentators are like, I don't get it, right? Like it, why the spit and why the mud and why the, we make guesses, but we don't know. It's one of those things I'm going to ask Jesus about when we get to heaven, right? So 
He went, he washed, and he came back to Jesus seeing, or came back to his spot being able to see. Jesus healed him. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. This is a hilarious situation, right? This dude gets healed. He comes back to the neighborhood where he has been begging, where he's lived his whole life. And people are like, wait a second, isn't that the blind guy? And people are like, yeah, that's the blind guy. How is he walking around? He can see. And other people are like, no, he looks like the blind guy. But you know, all those blind guys look the same, right? Like I, I can't tell the difference. But like, and the whole time he's going, no guys, it's me, it's me, it's Steve. It's really me, right? Like. I, I just, I love the comedy in these situations that all of the neighbors are arguing about whether this is the blind guy. And the whole time you just kind of picture him going like, guys, it's me. Remember from grade school, we had Miss Darby together. Like, like it, it, he's trying to convince them that it's him, which I just, I think that's funny. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He goes, I don't know. I was blind five minutes ago. I don't know where the guy went. I couldn't see, right? So this is, this is the first of several kind of interrogations that this guy is gonna go through. So that's the first, the neighbors. The second says they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. This guy's got a real Prince vibe going on now, right? Like now he's known as the man who is formerly blind, right? Like Prince is the, the artist formerly known as Prince. That's what I see. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Man, these Pharisees are hung up on the Sabbath. And I, I don't know if Jesus is only healing people on the Sabbath, like just to mess with the Pharisees. I, I don't know if we only get the recorded ones, like they only recorded the ones where he healed on the Sabbath because it caused a fight. And like he's healing all, you know, on Tuesdays too. Like, you know, it's not just like Sabbath is healing day just to, just to get at the Pharisees. But man, they are hung up on they, they cannot see once again, right? Like we saw this last time, the last time Jesus healed the guy at the pool, the guy who couldn't walk, right? They, they, they couldn't see what he did. They only saw that he did it on the Sabbath. And here we go again. He has healed a man born blind who has never once seen the, the light of day. And all they can care about is the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. One commentary says it this way. The conversation between the healed man and the Pharisees is filled with gospel irony. He who sees for the first time in his life reveals the long-standing blindness of the Pharisees. They only see the law, but the healed man sees the Messiah, to whom the law points. In their hubris, the Pharisees can only boast about Moses. In his humility, the healed man only boasts about Jesus. The Pharisees, 
charged the healed man with walking in the darkness of sin, but he sees the light of the world, the sun, who made the sun and everything else. The Pharisees excommunicated him from the life of the temple. Jesus made him a living stone in the only true and lasting temple, Christ himself. Right? If you haven't picked on the theme yet, John is playing with this idea of who is blind and who can see. Right? The, the answer at the most obvious level is obviously the blind man at the beginning of the story is the blind and everybody else can see. But as the story goes on, you realize it's actually the Pharisees who are the blind people and this man who was formerly blind because he knew his need and admitted his need can now see. So now you've got this crossing over of characters here now where those who thought they could see are now becoming blind and those who are blind are now able to see. And at the middle of that crossing, the only moment, the only part that matters is what they do with Jesus. The Pharisees are blind to who Jesus is. They're blind to what Jesus has done. They're choosing willfully to only see the fact that he did it on the Sabbath to only kind of get hung up on the law, to get hung up on the rules, to get hung up on, as we'll see in a moment, their control and their power and the system that they've built. And in the midst of it, they cannot see the miracles of Jesus and the fact that he is literally giving sight to the blind. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that the man had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? Now, what's interesting about this, I don't know why, but when, I, when the story begins, I picture this guy as a middle-aged, kind of maybe older guy, but he's clearly like a younger kid because they call his parents. They, they bring him in, go, hey, what happened? He tells the story and they go, yeah, we don't believe you. Let's call your parents in, right? So they call the parents in. They go, is this actually your son, right? So verse 20, uh, verse, uh, sorry, verse 19. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered. And this is like, uh, it's like a hostage video, their answer. So listen to their answers. He goes, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. They're very careful about what it is they'll admit to. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. These are not great parents, right? These are not parents who've like rushed before the Pharisees to defend their child and go, of course he was born blind. He has suffered all his life and we have suffered with him and now he can see and we're so excited about this and maybe we don't know exactly who did it or how they did it, but man, we're excited and we stand with our son. They go, yes, technically that's our son and we can attest that he was born blind, but that's it. We don't know anything else. You should ask him. Like they fully throw their kid under the bus in front of the Pharisees and go, he's old enough. He can answer for himself. He's like 16. It should be fine, right? Verse 22 gives us a little bit more of the picture. It says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
So to be put out of the synagogue did not just have religious implications. I mean, you, you, that was the only place you'd come to worship. You couldn't come to do your sacrifices, which meant you couldn't get right with God. You couldn't follow the system if you couldn't come into the synagogue. But it's also where the life of the city took place. It's where relationships were made. It's where connections were made. It's where you ran into your neighbors. This was the center of Jewish life. So literally, if they'd have been put out of the synagogue, they'd have been put out of, they would have had to move out of the city into a, a, a completely new place. And that was not as easy then as it is now. So the stakes were really high. They were being driven by fear in a way that caused them to throw their son under the bus. The Pharisees are fearful of Jesus, and so they're using fear to protect their own power and influence. And then as a result, the parents are fearful of losing their place in society, and so they put the burden on their young son. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Okay, here, here, the, here with the pressure that they're putting on this young man. They're saying to him, listen, God did this. Don't worry about this guy. I, we don't, this guy's a sinner. We know he's doing things on the wrong day. He's a sinner. Give glory to God. Stop giving glory to Jesus. Stop giving attention. Stop giving credit to Jesus. Just give glory to God. That's clearly who healed you. And let's just not talk about this Jesus guy anymore, right? He answered, and this kid's got guts. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. He goes, one thing I know, though, that though I was blind, now I see. That though I was blind, now I see. He goes, I don't know this guy. I couldn't even see him until after he healed me. I couldn't have picked him out of a lot. I don't know this guy from anybody. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know. You make accusations. I don't know anything about it. But he goes, here's what I know. I know one thing. I was blind my whole life. This guy showed up, and now I see. Some of the commentators point out that some of the grammar here in this sentence construction might draw our attention in a different way that perhaps this young man said, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. The implication being, do you? I see. I used to be blind, and now I see. I used to be blind, and then I met Jesus, and now I see. What about you? Are you blind, or do you see? The Pharisees do not like this. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They're asking the same questions over and over again. He answered them, and I just love this kid. I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> He's just like fully trolling these Pharisees. It's so fantastic. He goes, you keep asking me, why are you so obsessed with him? Why are you so obsessed with Jesus? Do you want to be his disciples too? Like he's, he's playing with them because the Pharisees are trying to find any way to discredit Jesus, to maintain their control, to maintain their power, to maintain their place. And Jesus represents a potential disruption to their system. And so they're trying to tear down like a, like a really good lawyer, trying to tear down this man's testimony. And yet he says, listen, here's my testimony. I was blind my whole life. I met Jesus. Now I see. That's what I know. Why are you so obsessed with this guy? 
You want to be his disciples too? Why do you keep asking me question after question after question after question? Is it because you're pursuing the truth? Is it because you see the miracles this man has done and you want to know more? Or is it that this man is a threat to you and you're trying to discredit him by discrediting me? Which is it? And I think we know the answer to that question. And they reviled him, verse 28, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They go, we, we're with Moses, and everybody knows Moses. Moses is really popular and a really big deal. We don't even know where this guy comes from. I mean, who even is this guy, right? Like, the, the pettiness in this situation just knows no depths, and this guy just stays on him. Verse 30, he goes, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. You don't know anything about this guy. He's a nobody. And yet he performed a miracle of giving me sight. He goes, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper, worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He uses their own logic against them. They go, well, this guy, this guy's a sinner, so it couldn't have been him. And he goes, well, it was him, so he couldn't be a sinner, right? I mean, that, that's their whole logic. Like, this guy's a sinner. He's doing things on the wrong day. It could not possibly have been him. He goes, well, I'm just telling you it was him, so maybe your presupposition is wrong. Maybe he's not who you think he is. Maybe you've got this whole thing backwards. Maybe you're blind to what actually matters, and you're only seeing the thing that doesn't matter at all. You're looking really hard at the technicality and missing the big miracle here. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss the one who made me see. Don't miss the one who opened my eyes. And their response continued pettiness. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. See what they just said? They just believed that whole karmic reality that he was born in utter sin, because he was born blind, that he was born in sin. So they discredit this man's testimony by going, well, yeah, but you were born blind, so that means you were born in sin, so we don't even have to listen to you. Continually rejecting the testimony about Jesus by any means possible so they don't have to deal with him. They don't want to deal with Jesus. And so they just discredit instead of actually engaging the fact that there might be amongst them a man who can perform miracles. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. and Having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus is a little dramatic here. Like a little, maybe a little dramatic, right? He goes, instead of just going like, oh, it's me. Sorry, that was confusing. You know, like, do you believe in the son of man? And this, this, this formerly blind guy's like, sure, Who, who's that? Jesus doesn't go, oh, sorry, yeah, that was confusing. I just mean me. He goes, no. He goes, you have seen him and it is he speaking to you, right? Like this huge revelation. I just kind of love those moments. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. Jesus said, catch this. For judgment, I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind, right? We don't see in the Greek the air quotes that Jesus is implying here, but they're there, right? 
that Jesus goes, here's why I came into the world for judgment. And judgment is in our vernacular, just kind of always a negative thing. But judgment simply just means to, to like, to differentiate, to separate between good and evil, to, to, to differentiate between light and the darkness, right? Like that's what Jesus came to, to do. When, when, the, when the light comes on, you can see clearly what is before you. So he goes, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, to give sight to the blind and that those who see may become blind, that those who think that they can see the world clearly and they got it all figured out will miss me. They won't see me. Why? Because they think they have it all figured out. This theme runs throughout scripture and it's, it's, it's very similar to what Jesus said about rich people, that it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, right? Why? Because rich people think they got it. They got it handled and they don't have needs, right? The, the, the same thing for those who can see. When you walk into a room believing that you can see everything, you don't sense need. You don't look. And oftentimes you don't see what is most obvious. But when you walk into a room knowingly blind or when you walk into a room that is dark, you grope around because you're aware that you cannot see and therefore you have need of help to be able to see rightly. This is a consistent theme of the gospel. Those who think they've got it figured out don't have it figured out. And as a result, they miss Jesus. But those among us that are most desperate, most aware of our deep need, who see the law not as simply rules to be able to live up to and perfect, and then when we don't actually fudge them, change them, or pretend we're doing better than we are, but a rule of law to go, hey, I can never be that. I'm going to try to be that, and I'm going to fail to be that, and so I'm going to need a Savior. I'm going to need a Messiah every single day that those of us who see the law, who see the world, who see ourselves and know our blindness, it's only then that we will see. So at the beginning of this, I told you that you're the blind man, and that is my hope for you. My hope for you is that you are the blind man, that you recognize your blindness, that you recognize your need, you recognize your helplessness, you recognize that something significant is missing from your life and you need help. And not just once, because many of you who are watching this have made a profession of faith, that not just once would you be able to, to acknowledge your need, but that every single day you would wake up and go, I am blind, and I need help. I once was blind, and now I see. And now I'm blind again, and now I need to see again, because I have a lot of blindness, a lot of areas in my life where I cannot see. And as Jesus is having this conversation with the blind man, the Pharisees continue to listen in. So some of the Pharisees, were 40, heard him say these things, and they said to him, are we also blind? Are you talking about us? I hear you, Jesus. You, you, you're talking about us, aren't you? You think we're blind, don't you? Jesus goes, tell you what, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So he goes, you decide. Are you blind or do you see? Because if you see, then you're responsible for what you see. If you say that you know, then you're responsible for what you know. If you say that you understand, then you're responsible for what you understand. But if you admit that you are blind and in need, then no guilt remains. You're with me. I'll take care of you. But you got to admit that you're, 
that you're blind. This Pharisee overhears Jesus maybe hint at the idea that the Pharisees are actually more blind than they think they are. And they go, oh, are you calling us blind? And he goes, you wish. You wish. Because if you say that you see and you understand the way the world works and you've got it handled and you don't need any help and you, you've just figured it out, well, then you're on your own. Jesus goes, man, if you can just admit that you're blind, admit that you have need, admit that you need help, you will find help. You will find all the help you need. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, says this, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. The key is don't try to be big. Don't try to be strong. Don't try to be your own light. Don't try to claim your own seeing and your own understanding. That's what's getting in the way. Never once has Jesus looked at a person and gone, well, they're too weak. They're too small. They're too sinful. Never. But he does look at us and go, He thinks he's too strong. He thinks he's too big. And he thinks he understands. He thinks he has all the light he needs. He thinks he gets it all. So he doesn't need me. Don't let your strength, your bigness, or your supposed light hinder you from coming to Christ so that he can heal you the way he healed this blind man. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Whether we know it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, we do need you. And, and trying to be big and trying to be strong and trying to, 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 to know everything and to figure it all out and to, to kind of manage our way through life doesn't change for a moment how much we need you. God, please open our eyes the way you open the blind man's eyes. Open our eyes to see clearly what it is that lies before us. Open our eyes to see the need we have each and every day. In Christ's name, amen. Now, as always, we're going to transition to a time of response. We do this in a few different ways. We're going to continue to sing together, sing the praises of the God who saves us and gives us eyes to see. We're going to give. So we, when, when given the chance to express our deep thankfulness and love for God. One of the ways we do that is by being generous the way he has been generous with us. So we're going to give together, encourage you to do that online uh, or by whatever means that you normally do. Also during this time, we're going to take communion. This is a, a weekly opportunity for us to acknowledge our need. We eat the bread and we take the wine or the juice in order to acknowledge the fact that we could not save ourselves. There's not a law, even as a dumbed down, simplified law that we could ever follow. We can't even follow our own expectations for ourselves. We have need of a savior. Jesus was what we could never be. So we partake of communion as a weekly reminder of our deep need for him. Before we do any of that, we always take a moment in silent reflection. It's a chance to pray, think, and meditate on what we have heard. So let's do that together.